Second uh, Samuel chapter nine is where we are today, and uh, our our goal in this um, section of scripture we've been in First and Second Samuel together, and, and our goal in this this portion of scripture has been to pursue the heart of God. Uh, in First Samuel chapter thirteen verse fourteen, God makes that famous statement about David that he's a man after God's own heart. And we're looking at the story of David. We've been seeing a lot of great things about David. We're going to get to some bad stuff here in a little, not today, but in the weeks ahead. But uh, we've been looking at some great things about the life of David. And you know, when you, when you read scripture, there are a few characters in the Bible that when we read about them, we just have a lot more information about them than, than others. I mean, Jesus being one, right? And, and then you have uh, the apostle Paul, Moses, and David. Uh, some say David has had more written about him than any other character in scripture. And so you get a really good opportunity uh, of, of having some insight into the life of an individual and how he grows in the Lord. And, and that's some things that we have looked at recently in the life of David, uh, from the bringing of the ark into Jerusalem and some things he learned about his relationship with God into the desire to build the temple and all that that entailed. He fighting Goliath, his battle with Saul, uh, trying to run from his life. He, he really, you see him mature in the Lord from a young man when he's anointed all the way to the time where we are where he is a king. And 2 Samuel chapter 9 is another one of those important passages. And we titled uh, today's message, Fighting Loneliness. But, but I'm going to be a little bit honest in saying it's somewhat of a internet clickbait sort of statement, right? Because it, it, we are going to talk about uh, fighting loneliness. We're for sure going to talk about fighting loneliness. But I, I want you to know that this passage is much more than that. Uh, because when we talk in terms of fighting loneliness, it doesn't necessitate that your life is necessarily going to be lived for something great either, right? Like you're, you're not lonely anymore, but, but what does that mean? Like what does life look like? How does that tell you to follow after the Lord? It's, not, it's sort of the beginning statement to something that hopefully God leads in, into to much more than just is simply not being lonely. I mean, if that's all our goal is today, I just don't want to be lonely anymore. Like we, we miss out on a, a wonderful opportunity that God calls us to in a relationship with him. So I, I, we titled it that because there's certainly some, uh, some implications here that we can learn to relate to our lives, uh, to develop a life that, that moves from a sense of loneliness, right? But at the same time, I, I want to be realistic in saying, look, I'm not going to give you a statement today that's going to solve every lonely problem you have for the rest of your life. We live in a sinful world and, and, and that tends to be something that we wrestle with and and battle with, but when we wrestle and battle with things, we want to do it in light of Christ and the things that he says to us, right? Well, how does God uh, speak, speak into this portion of our lives to understand him, though this may be a struggle in our human condition because of sinfulness? Not necessarily your sin, but we live in a sin-cursed world, right? And so we're, we're going to deal a little bit with that and related to today's topic, but I'm going to cover four ideas when we look at Second at, at Samuel chapter 9. Good thing about this chapter is it's a shorter chapter, right? So, so we're going to talk about what David did, we're going to talk about how Mephibosheth received it, and then we're going to talk about why David did it, and then how it all applies to you. That's it. So we're going to share this story, talk about why, and then how it applies. That's pretty simplistic in it, but let's look at what David did together. Um, when you start off in this story, what you see is David is searching for the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake in order to show kindness. Okay, so David's searching for the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake in order to show kindness. And I'll share a little bit about those characters if you're, if, if you're new uh, to the series together. But Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Then David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may, here's the key words here, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. 
Now there was a, a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom may, and look at this again, I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So you see what David's desire is here. He says it in verse 1, verse 3. He actually says it again in verse 7. This idea of, of kindness that he's wanting to demonstrate uh, to the house of Saul. And so what he does is he takes this individual named Mephibosheth. Sorry, it's a mouthful there. Mephibosheth from the house of Jonathan and cared for him. So if you're looking for a good name for your future child, consider Mephibosheth, right? Um, so he, he brings him from the house uh, of Jonathan and he he cares for them in a, in a very unique, um, honoring way. Second Samuel chapter nine, verse five, look at this. Then King David sent and brought from the house of Machir, the son of Emil from Lodabar. I uh, pronounced all those correct, all right? And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. And then skip to verse seven. And David said to him, and I just want to look at this phrase. I'm going to skip the first phrase here. This next phrase, he says, I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And he will, re- and, and, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. So David takes Mephibosheth from the house of Saul, a fallen position, elevates him, puts him at the king's table to eat regularly. What a position of honor. And we've really seen some incredible things David's done through the last few chapters of this book, right? I mean, chapter, chapter five, he unites all of Israel. Uh, chapter six, he brings the ark into J- Jerusalem. In chapter 7, he wants to build the temple. He doesn't get to build the temple, but we learn a lot of great things about David's heart in chapter 7. Chapter 8, he goes on this conquest again against the Philistines to protect his people. And now in chapter 9, he's extending this grace to the house of Saul, to this individual named Mephibosheth, for the sake, it tells us in verse 7, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now, how does Mephibosheth respond I'm just trying to figure out how to say that name less. But how does he respond, right? Uh, let me ask you, before we look at this next little section here, how would you respond? Uh, you think about the circumstances leading up to this, that yes, Jonathan was friend of David, and Mephibosheth is his child, but his grandfather is also Saul. And you remember what King Saul did did to David, right? He, I mean, he pursued after him for well over a year. He wanted to kill David. And now David is in the position that, that Saul was in, ruling and reigning as king. And, and, and Mephibosheth represents the house of Saul, who would have been the, the house of his enemy. And now you learn that King David, as one of the last living relatives here, has called you before his presence. What would you think? How would you respond, right? 
Maybe the night before you appear before this king, you just say, well, you know, I'm a little busy this evening. Uh, give, me a, give me a night of sleep. And, and maybe you just plan your escape. Certainly that night, you probably don't have a very good night of, of rest. But Mephibosheth comes before the king in verse six. Let's look at this. The son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. And verse seven, and David said to him, and here's the important words, you're dead. No, that's not what he says. In verse 7, he says, and do not fear. Do not fear. And look in verse 8. Mephibosheth again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? So he responds, Mephibosheth responds by, by falling on his face really in begging for his life. And, and David tells him not to be afraid. So we see very easy, it's, it's, it's easy to, to understand why Mephibosheth would respond this way, right? I mean, the tradition during David's day, if you're a king that takes power over another king, the first thing that you want to do is eliminate everyone in the family that was opposed to you in taking this position, right? Because what you don't want is another uprising. And even if Mephibosheth's goal is not to, to, to necessarily take over the throne again for the sake of his family that recently had the throne, uh, other people can see Mephibosheth as this, this rallying point in opposition politically against King David. So even if, even if his desire is not to take over King David's position again, he could become a puppet in other people's plans to rally around in order to provoke people to, to unite against King David. And so David, by sparing his life, could be taking risk, right? And no one expects David to do this. Now, this is on somebody's radar where they're like, you know what David should really do, Right? David does this anyway. And if we think about how far David goes in order to demonstrate this kind of care for Mephibosheth, right? David, he, he reaches across political lines. He reaches across tribal lines. He's, he, he's from uh, tr- the tribe of Judah and, and Saul was from Benjamin. He even reaches across enemy lines. David extends this particular grace that just is, is astounding when you consider it. And I really think that this is, this is the reason that we find this in this chapter. Like when God writes in his word, he's not just telling us stories to tell us stories. They have purpose for us to glean from. And, and so we can ask the question, okay, so, so then if we think a little deeper here, if we just look at the story, now we can ask the question, why did David do it? Why would David do this? And this is, a, this is an enormous question because I, I feel like that question not only answers this passage, but it really gets to the heart of what Christianity is all about. Why would David extend this kind of level? Well, it's rooted in one word that we've already seen together. David cared for Mephibosheth because of one word, and that word here is, is kindness, right? 
Verse one, you saw it. He did it because of, of Jonathan, the relationship they had as friends, the kindness. Verse three, he wanted to show the kindness of God. Verse seven, again, he says, I did it for the sake of your father, Jonathan. The word kindness. What is this kindness? When in Hebrew, this word, this word kindness means has said, and it's not just any type of kindness. Like today, we, just, we can kind of throw words out generically in our culture, just be kind to one another. In, in the world that you can be anything, my wife's got this written on our doors, we go out in the world that you can be anything, be kind. That's what, that's what it says. But what, is, what does kindness mean for us? Well, this, this particular kindness is much deeper than just simply the, the word. It, it's, it's rooted in covenantal love, covenantal relationship. When David is saying this word kindness, packaged with it is this idea of of covenantal love. And David associates it with the house of Jonathan. Now, where does David get this from? I mean, we just read this story left into itself. We might be thinking, you know, Jonathan uh, was David's friend. All of a sudden, David wakes up one day. He doesn't have anything better to do. And all of a sudden, he starts to think about his friend, Jonathan. He's like, you know what? I just want to do something nice for Jonathan. I miss Jonathan. Today's the anniversary of his passing. And I just want to, I just want to care for things because I cared about Jonathan. Is that what David's doing? Well, if you go back in, into 1 Samuel, here's, here's a few things that we saw together. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, verse 3. And, and David and Jonathan's relationship, I want you to see this. The, one of the first interactions that they have together is in chapter 18. And it says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David. And here's why. Because he loved him as himself. And in verse 4, we read this together in the park. You might remember this. Verse 4, look what Jonathan does. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David his armor, uh, with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So if you remember in the context of chapter 18, this is David anointed. Chapter 16, David defeats Goliath. Chapter 17, when you get to chapter 18, uh, Jonathan recognizes in David that there's something special God's doing here. That God's hand is here. And, and Jonathan does something very unique even for his day, right? He is the next in line for the throne. And rather than assume the, his position, his rightful position as son to King Saul, he comes off his throne and surrenders his sword and takes off his royal robe as if to communicate without saying a word that this position doesn't belong to me, but it belongs to him. And he gives it all to David. Because why? He covenanted with him. This loving relationship. And he does this. Jonathan does this at great risk to his own life so that David could become who God was calling him to be. In fact, it cost Jonathan his life. When you look in 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you remember this, we we looked at this together. It says in verse 8, in chapter 20, David knows for sure that King Saul's trying to kill him. and, and, And he wants really to win Jonathan over in understanding this. And he meets Jonathan in the field and he says, look, you need to go talk to your dad to find out if his heart's really about killing me. And when you find out, you need to come back and tell me. And, and in verse eight, this is where David says this, therefore deal kindly with your servant for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. 
They would say, look, I'm about to die, Jonathan. I, I, just could you be kind to me here because my life is on the line and deal kindly with me because we have this covenant together. And then in verse 14 of chapter 20, you see Jonathan's response. He says, if I am still alive, look at that. He's saying in this covenant relationship, I'm going to go do this for you, David, but it could cost me my life. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your, your loving kindness from my house forever. And verse 17, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. That kindness that David's expressing to Mephibosheth is rooted in this story with Jonathan and David where they covenanted together. And in chapter 20, you see Jonathan saying, look, at risk my own life. If I live or if I die, here's what I want you to do. Please just take care of my family. Take care of my family. And they had this covenant where they cared for one another uh, more than their own life or as much as they cared about their own life. Covenantal love is crucial to understanding 2 Samuel chapter 9. And honestly, covenantal love, I think, is lost today. Covenantal love um, is lost today, and without it, what it does, I think, is it leads us to loneliness. And I'm I'm not meaning just the feeling of loneliness. I'm I'm meaning genuinely lacking companionship because we we lack uh, the depth of relationship that covenantal love expresses, and why? Why do we not walk in covenantal love today? And I don't think this is a unique problem for our culture. I think it's, it's unique to just, or it's, it's, it's to human nature in general. But, but when I think about this type of relationship and I look at our culture today, like, I think we stand back from covenantal love. And I'm just gonna give you three top reasons why, why I think for us it's a struggle uh, to, to walk in the type of relationship that Jonathan and David communicate here. And number one, we stand back from covenantal love because what we're taught is more consumer love. We can, I sometimes call it contractual love, but it's more of a retail love. When you, when you think in, in terms of consumer love, in, in a consumer relationship, you will sacrifice relationship in order to meet your need. In, in, in covenantal love, you, you sacrifice need in order to benefit the relationship. Now, in a consumer-driven retail world, look, I think that type, of, that type of relationship in the consumer world is important and it's healthy, right? Like you've got a dollar and you develop this relationship in the retail world based on your dollar. And if you go and you get poor customer service or poor product, then take your dollar somewhere else, right? Like it's what drives the economy to get better. It's what drives, it's what drives businesses to get better. Like if you're not a good business and your dollar goes away, you figure out how to be a better business. And someone's a good business and you give your dollar there, then they realize, then we're doing pretty good at business, right? You communicate something that way. However, if you treat personal relationships like you treat retail relationships, what you have is a fragmented society full of of loneliness. Consumer relationship is for business. Covenant relationship is for friendship. And so this idea is covenant relationship is about giving and not consuming. 
And in our society today, I, I think that, that consumer relationship takes precedent to who we are because let me tell you about this. The second point is we stand back from covenantal love because we are afraid of commitment. And the reason we're afraid of commitment is because, by golly, we are Americans and we have our freedom. And with freedom, it's all about individuality, right? What is my personal wants? What is my personal need? It takes precedent above all others. But what you see with with David and Jonathan in this section of scripture is they love them more than their own life. Jonathan willing to, to risk his life. We reject commitment. We like to be able, with no commitment, just to kind of pop in and pop out, right? I get what I want, and I meet my need, and I'm gone. Covenant love brings with it limits. It limits your freedom because it's about serving, not being served. The irony is, when you think about covenant love, as scary as commitment of covenantal love is, because you lose your freedom, there is nothing more liberating and freeing than covenantal relationship. I think our soul longs for the circle of friends that are committed to one another, that stick together, that know you have each other's back. I think we're created that way as human beings. I mean, you read the story of of Jonathan and David, and without even saying anything, without even providing a sermon for it, if you just read the story, you just think, man, how sweet is that? How great is that, that even in adversity, here you see these these two brothers in the Lord. They're there for each other. And you don't have that type of liberation and freedom with and, and freedom in that relationship without losing your freedom to the dedication of covenant love. Or how about this? I think the third reason we we pull back from that covenantal love is we have we have what some might call FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Man, we are overwhelmed with the possibilities of everything. And because of the possibilities of everything, we end up not really committing to anything and therefore accomplishing nothing. The moment you enter into covenant love, you identify yourself about something, right? But can I tell you, people that you go back in life and just admire are the kind of people that that don't let that FOMO, that fear of missing out, dictate but they have determined in their heart what they are going to be about. And they live it out. Even to the point when you see in the life of David, when Jonathan's gone because of, of that covenantal relationship we had, he just keeps blessing Jonathan's family. So why does it matter? Well, it, it's in this chapter that you're peeling back the curtain on a godly life, changing love to see how really, it, it, what does it look like when it fleshes out? I mean, we could talk about unconditional agape love all day long. We can love, God's about love. The supreme ethic of Christianity is love. But what does it look like when it's lived through you, right? 
And that's what you see in the story of David is in this very practical way, it's this, this giving of himself to the benefit of, of someone else. When, when Mephibosheth comes to David, he, he knows the tradition is death, but in covenant love, what does he find? Life. Life, and the same for you, if you come to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, you know in that sinfulness before him, uh, the sentence against us is death, but what do you find? You find life. You find a seat at the king's table. And David demonstrated this kindness of love for Mephibosheth, for the sake, he says, of your father, Jonathan. And we as, as human beings are designed to long for a friendship like, like Jonathan and David. That Jonathan, he gave up his throne and risked his life so that David could live in his. And guys, you have that kind of friendship. That Jesus gave up his throne and risked his life so that you could find yours in him. Covenantal love. That's what makes Christianity so unique. We don't avail ourselves to God. Every religion in the world will teach you that. You gotta do until you think God might be happy with you and you just hope for the best, right? But not in Christianity. We have life because of covenantal love. Because of what Jesus has done for us. We, we use the, the biblical, the doctrine word is imputation, right? Where Jesus imputes his righteousness on us by giving his life for us. So what do we do with all this? When you walk out the doors today, I mean, how does Second Samuel 9 just, how do you bring it home? Well, one is to say this, and if, if you don't have covenantal love with Jesus, to understand that this is the place, the invitation to you where David's life becomes a model of Jesus' life. That, that Jesus, in the same position as king of kings or greater position as king of kings, uh, holds your life in his hands and he could crush it in any moment. But instead, what does he do? He extends grace, mercy, and love. And he offers you a seat at the table. If you would just fall before him and confess him as Savior and King. Number two, if you have covenantal relationship with Jesus, this becomes the platform for us to really make our life count for something that matters beyond just today. No more FOMO. <laughs> but to hone ourselves in in the glory of God made known in our lives that as this covenantal love has been expressed to us uh, that we could then uh, demonstrate it to others just as, as Jonathan demonstrated to David that David could find his life, spare his life and then David therefore carries it on in, in Jonathan's family. And so it is with us, guys. In God's community, if you hold back, you miss out. But if you surrender, you bless abundantly.
You know, I'm big on, on this thought as a, as a church family. Like we get together on Sundays, and I love getting together on Sundays and seeing God's people and rallying behind the glory of God being made known in my heart and into this world and how it can transcend in all of us. Um, and, and one of the things I, I love to remind myself is, look, Sunday morning, we don't get together just to get together. Like, it's not this. I, I love the tradition of it, but it's much deeper than just the tradition of getting together on Sunday. Jesus' people are called together for a rallying purpose behind why God created the church to storm down the gates of hell, to make his glory known, to watch people rescued in him and to see lives transformed. That's why we gather together. And when I, when I think back into the early uh, days of, of the church and its existence, and we just ask the question, God, how did they make such a difference? I mean, the scripture even tells us in the beginning of the book of Acts that there was a time that the Lord added 3,000 souls in one day. In one day, 3,000 souls added to the kingdom. Like, how does that happen? What, what, what is it needs to happen in God's community and God's people to see that, that kind of transformation in, in a society, in a place where people live? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse, verse 42, do you know it tells you what it is? Look at this. And they were continually devoting themselves. There was a cause for which they lived. And I I love that they chose this word devoted. It goes on and gives a list of everything that they did, but it was because of this devotion. This word devotion comes from from the the same Greek word for proskuneo, which means to worship. Jesus said in John 4, 23 to 25, the time is coming and now is that he who worships must worship me in spirit and truth. Same word drives as the word devoting here. And what is this word? Well, this word carries this idea of this deep, intimate commitment. The giving of self for the benefit of others. And what the early church saw when they lived this out is that it was inspiring to the people around them. That the people around them saw this and they said, I, I, I crave that. I want that. And the Lord adds 3,000 souls in a single day by the demonstration of this type of love in God's people. It's contagious. I was, uh, you, you could do this in church history with, with almost any missionary, but there's this young lady named uh, Mary Slessor. Uh, Mary Slessor lived at, at the turn of the last century. She was mid-1800s, 1848 to the early 1900s. There she is. Here's what's incredible about her story. She, she went as a young lady, 27 years old, to Nigeria as a missionary. The reason she went was because of David Livingston. And some of you may know the story of David Livingston. He, he went all over Africa. Ends up giving his life in Africa. When he dies, they cut his heart out. They leave it in Africa and they send his body back out of, out of request for his home country. And they gave this thought that David Livingston, you can have his body from where it was from, but we're keeping his heart here because David Livingston gave his heart for Africa. And Mary Slessor, as a young lady, her, her mother used to read to her missionary stories and she had a tough life. But her mother used to read to her missionary stories and her mother read to her about David Livingston and at 27 years old when she heard David Livingston was dead, she packed her things and moved to Africa. And she gave her life there. She was covenantally dedicated to her Lord. And in that relationship, she gave her life for the people in Africa. Guys, I I say all this to say to us, when when our hearts see that type of dedication, 
It's inspirational, isn't it? And where does it come from? We know where it comes from. That covenantal love that inspires your heart to give all that you are. As Jesus has done for you, so you can make that difference in the world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.